Lawrence Gonzalez is the author of three novels and five books of nonfiction. His best-selling book, Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why, has been published in six languages and was followed by Surviving Survival, The Art and Science of Resilience. His other works include Flight 232, Lucy, and House of Pain. Gonzalez has received numerous awards, including two National Magazine Awards and the Distinguished Service Award from the Society of Professional Journalists. In 2015, he received a journalism fellowship from the Santa Fe Institute, or SFI, and in 2016 was given an appointment as a Miller Scholar there. His appointment as an SFI Miller Scholar was renewed for 2017, 2018, and 2019. He is our guest on this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Lawrence, welcome. Thank you. We're very grateful to have you on the show, and I think we're going to have a very timely conversation today. I have to acknowledge why we are both calling into this episode. We are dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak here in New York City, and due to an executive order, New York State on pause, we must practice social distancing and all non-essential workers can't gather. So we are fortunate that the Gotham Podcast Studio, where we normally record this show, has uh, given us the ability to record virtually. So thank you for joining me today over the phone. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time right now in this crisis. Happy to do it. So I assume that many of our listeners have read the book, Deep Survival. But for those who have not yet, because I know by the time they're done listening to this episode, they will read it. What did you set out to explore and document in the book? Well, I started out in the early 70s investigating airline crashes. I was always interested in aviation. I've been a pilot most of my life. And uh, I wasn't very satisfied with the way that the National Transportation Safety Board explained airline crashes. So I, I would go to these people and I'd say, well, this pilot, uh, he's an ex-military guy. He's got 30,000 hours, uh, very experienced guy. He's got a master's in engineering, you know, a really smart guy. So how come he did the stupidest thing a pilot can do and flew his plane into the ground? And they would say, well, uh, we don't really know. Um, you know, we'd like to interview him, but he's dead. So uh, we, we, that part of the equation is something we can't know. And I thought, wait a minute, that's really the most interesting part, isn't it? Um, I mean, the mechanical stuff about how the accident happened is interesting. But what went on in this guy's head is even more interesting. And so all of my life I had been trying to fill in that bit of the equation. Like, what are people thinking when they do these amazingly stupid things? So my theme in life had kind of become why smart people do stupid things. And, and in fact, when I give talks, I often use that as a, a sort of tagline for my talk. So Deep Survival was the first uh, scientific book to address this question, to talk about survival in terms of the actual brain science that we have come to know in recent decades. And I wanted to answer that question, like what was this guy thinking when he did that really stupid thing? So I think we all want to know that in a way. And I think that modern neuroscience gives us the tools to help understand that. Excellent. And I have to tell you that 
You're right. I mean, people do want to know the answer to that question. And every time I give out the book to a friend and say, you know, you should should read this, you would appreciate it. I never get it back. I've purchased about four or five copies of your book because it changes people. They love it so much. So just to make a note of that, what would you say are the most influential factors in determining whether someone lives or dies in a high risk environment? particularly when the situation goes sideways? Well, of course, this is, this is what I outline in the book, and I, I give sort of traits of good survivors. In an appendix to the book, I chose 12 traits. There's, you know, no particular limit to it. But the kind of things that, that I try to highlight are, for example, the first one is perceive and believe. And what that means is that when things change suddenly, you can't just pretend that things are the same as they used to be, because they're not. So when, for example, this coronavirus came along, the initial response of people in China was to deny that it was happening. This is exactly the wrong thing to do in a survival situation. It, it will come back and hurt you if you're denying what's happening. So it's kind of like the person, you know, had a lot of floods in the United States because of... Uh, climate change, and people drive their cars, and they see water, and they keep driving, and the water comes up to their wheels, and they keep driving, and they're essentially engaged in denial. It, like It's not really happening. This mm -hmm. used to be a street that I knew. Now it's a flood, and of course they drown and become a statistic. So, so there are these various traits that real good survivors have perceive and believe is one of them. Yes, things have changed. They're able to stay calm in the face of these changes. They're able to then be analytical and make a plan, and they're able to um, execute the plan. So we, we see that all the time in people who come out of these situations alive. And this goes for firefighters. It goes for police, military. It goes for people in financial businesses like hedge fund managers. And it can be applied in anything you do in your whole life, whether it's in a relationship or an illness or even something like cleaning your garage. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And can you please discuss a few of the trends or patterns that you found during your research related to human behavior and life or death survival events? Well, yes. The, the most common pattern is, as I said before, the, the, to start out with denial, you don't want to think, you know, that everything in your world has changed, and yet it happens all the time. And then most people panic. Uh, if something really has changed and you finally admit it, the, the most common thing is to, to lose your ability to think. So if you look at the way that the human brain works, and we now know it's not just the brain, it's the whole body that contains the brain, but <clears throat> people tend to work on, on two different modes, to put this simplistically. One is thinking in a linear way. Uh, for example, you get the instructions for a piece of furniture from Ikea, and if you follow them one by one, you'll get your nightstand put. So that's a kind of linear thinking that we're capable of. The other kind of uh, functioning is emotional, where we just react physically to something. And the two of those, don't they do work together but in extremes, they tend to work against each other. So if you have an extreme of emotion like fear, 
it's very hard to think straight. Mm-hmm. And if you manage to make yourself think straight, your emotional uh, state will go calm down somewhat. So to to function correctly in an emergency, a developing hazardous situation, one of the best things you can do is find something in a linear fashion that you can rationally take control of, and that will tend to lower your emotional arousal and Mm -hmm. let you plan and think more carefully. Yeah, obviously you've written about this and that your head carries a lot of influence, right? So given our current state, you know, does what's in your head influence what what might come of you during a pandemic? Yes, certainly it does. I mean, one of the one of the things we're finding in this is one of the hardest things to do is nothing. And indeed, we're being called upon to do a lot of nothing. Um, everybody wants you, you don't realize it as you go through your daily life, but everybody wants to be busy. And very few of us find it satisfying just to sit and do nothing. Well, there's a million things you can do at home, and the the smart money is on figuring out a plan to do them. So, you know, you've always wanted to learn French. Well, guess what? Now you have time to do it. There, there are all these different things that in your normal life you'll be thinking, I wish I had time to knit. I wish I had time to learn to play chess. I wish I had time to listen to the entire Wagner, you know, set of music. Well, if you are, in fact, in a position like I'm in right now where we're being told stay at home, all of a sudden you can do those things. And if you sort of adapt to the idea that you're going to get all this wonderful stuff done that you always wanted to do, it will make uh, sheltering in place so much more easy. Yeah, one of the quotes I've seen on social media is, you're not stuck at home, you're safe at home. So just changing that attitude seems to carry some weight. Yes, Um, that too, yeah. So of all the life and death events that you have explored, which has been the most profound for you and why? Well, you know, it depends on whether you're talking about my own, <laughs> my own or someone else. <laughs> Fair. Um, there, I think that we fail to realize what a contingent life we live, how, how close to death we are every day, just in ordinary everyday life. Um, you can be walking along the street and suddenly, you know, a car goes out of control and that's the end of your life. And we don't think that way. I think it would be kind of crippling to think that way all the time. But death is really very close at all times. And it's happening all around us all the time, just not in full view. And so there is that kind of after you study survival for, you know, 30 or 40 years, you kind of have that in the back of your mind, like, yeah, it really is, it's a dangerous world out there. And I think one of the reasons that old people tend to get more and more cautious is because they've seen, they've seen a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, yeah, you know, I, I was wrong when I was young and taking all these chances. The world really is dangerous. There have been a few times in my own life where I've come close to death. Mm-hmm. I used to fly aerobatics competition in the 1990s. I had a little stunt plane and I flew, you know, I flew upside down. And in the course of doing that, I came close to dying a few times. And looking back on it, I think I was really stupid. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been doing that. It was the most fun I'd ever had. And yet I really was not cut out for it, I think. And I eventually mm-hmm. quit. Um 
you know, I have also seen a lot of a lot of death in places where it didn't need to happen that way. Mm-hmm. One of the things I talk about in the book is uh, avalanche accidents, for example. It's very easy to avoid accidents with avalanches because mm-hmm. snow is not our normal environment. We go there to ski and have fun, um, and that's how we get in trouble. So when you're trying to balance this business of having fun versus dying, it should be pretty easy to figure out the risk-reward loop there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going out for a, a ski trip in Utah. You intend to come home to your family. You don't intend mm-hmm. to die. So if the rangers there tell you there's high danger of avalanche today, you don't go out on the snow because you want to get home to your family. And yet people do it every year, of course, and they die doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what I write about is human decision-making in that space where you're trying to balance your risk and your reward. What am I about to do, and what am I willing to pay for it? And in the case of these recreational things like scuba diving or skiing, flying upside down in little airplanes, the risk is very high. And the reward may be big too, but you have to really ask yourself, what am I willing to pay? Am I willing to pay my life? And I think for most of us, the answer is no. I do want to dive deeper into that. But before we get into it, I want to switch gears now to talking about tactical organizations such as the military, fire service, and law enforcement. Leaders encourage operators maintain maximum situational awareness in order to reduce risk and enhance safety. You, however, assert, be aware that you're not all there suggesting that maximum situational awareness is impractical in a high-risk environment. So which elements of situational awareness do you think are most critical, and how much weight do you give to sheer mindset? Well, I think situational awareness of course, important, but I think we have to view it perhaps a little differently. One of the incidents I talk about, and I'm pretty sure it's in Deep Survival, it may be in one of the other books, but... It involves um, wildland firefighters, and one of them has not had a lot of experience um, with leadership, is a younger guy, and the other one is an older guy with a lot of experience. And the younger guy goes down the hill toward the fire, and the older guy says, you know, I'm not taking my guys down there. I'm not quite sure why. I've just got a bad feeling about Mm-hmm. Something about this situation tells me to pull out. And the uh, younger guy was overrun, and the older guy pulled back and lived. And, and what what I'm getting at here is the older guy sensed something that wasn't literal and rational. He couldn't quite tell what it was about the situation that he was sensing was wrong, so he had a gut feeling. And I think that part of situational awareness, especially for people in these high-risk professions, is learning to pay attention to the gut feelings Mm -hmm. and being willing to say, you know, I can't tell you exactly why, but here's my gut feeling, and I think we ought to take a step back. So situational awareness can be a very complex thing, and it can involve certainly rational elements, but it must also involve elements that we can't quite explain. And I know from working with police and firefighters and military and all that, that everybody gets to learn that 
know, they, if they're going to, everybody who doesn't die gets to learn that at some point. Mm -hmm. And so the same was true with, with flying for a lifetime of flying. You start to look at situations and say, you know, I'm not sure why that doesn't look right to me, but I think I'm going to go the other way. And so I, I count that as a very important element. Absolutely. And that's what I was thinking in terms of talking to you more about decision making. I wanted to discuss intuition because many high risk organizations attempt to prepare leaders and operators to make sound decisions through analytical decision making. So what kind of advice would you give them in terms of training? Well, I think analytical decision making is very important. Um, we have to be able to gather facts and, you know, put them in order and analyze them and all that. But in a real situation, a live, evolving situation where we are called upon to move through the situation and react while going along, we have to really keep in mind the intuitive part of the process as well as the knowledge. If you know there's a fire burning down the slope and you are up the slope, you're going to know, you know that fire rises because you know it's hot. But you may also have a feeling, just by the way the landscape looked, this, this guy I was talking about, the firefighter, uh, the older one who survived, he had seen a blow up uh, on a wildland fire before. And there was a certain configuration to the fuel load that was on the ground and a certain configuration to the slope. And all these things fed into his uh, non-rational perceptions to where this situation looked to him a little bit like the other situation and told him that it was potentially dangerous. So I think, yes, analysis is very important. Um, we also have to keep open to those other feelings that we get around these hazardous situations. So now that we've unpacked some of those things from the start of our interview, you know, you asked the question, why do smart people do stupid things? What have you found to be the answer to that question? Because we act impulsively. So the, the basis of human behavior is physical. If you, uh, you know, scratch an itch, let's say, you know, your, your arm itches and you reach over and scratch it, you don't have to do any analysis to do that. Your body does that for you. There is an automatic... Uh, character to our physical behavior that any animal can exhibit. And, and we happen to have an additional layer of brain material that allows us to do a different kind of behavior, which is the sort of planned, outlined, linear behavior I was talking about. Uh, we're the only animal on Earth that can assemble a nightstand from Ikea by a set of instructions. No other animal can do that. So, so we have this special ability, but underneath that, we're constantly behaving in an unconscious fashion. So you don't really have to, for example, think about, you know, if you sit down to eat lunch, you just eat lunch. You can be reading the newspaper, you can be having a conversation, and your body will feed you lunch sort of automatically. Well, we see this all the time. If you try to teach a four-year-old um, to tie his shoe, which we're in the process of doing with our grandchildren right now, you find that it's very difficult. You know, mm -hmm. you take him through the steps one at a time, and it's very laborious, and he can't quite get it. Um, but at a certain point, 
he learns to tie his shoe, and a miraculous thing happens. You've got this system where a task that required all of his concentration suddenly becomes a task that requires none of his concentration. Now, how, do, how does that work? It's an amazing uh, thing, and yet it's the automatic behavior of all animals that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So two things happen. One is that most of our behavior is automatic, and so we react without thinking, uh, which is natural. And the other thing is, if we do something enough time, it'll become automatic. So if you go out to learn to play golf, when you begin, it'll be terrible. You'll have to do everything by thinking through the steps. Somebody will have to tell you how to swing and how to stand and how to hold the club. But if you keep doing it long enough, your golf swing will become automatic, and it'll become a beautiful, smooth thing. And interestingly enough, if you do try to think of it, it won't work. Mm -hmm. So we have this funny dual system that is part of nature, and when we're in stressful situations, we revert to automatic behavior. So I talk about in in the book, Deep Survival, I talk about a group of uh, snowmobilers who were warned about the avalanche danger. They were told, do not do any high marking. That's where you run up the hill real fast and see how high you can go, because today the avalanche danger is very high. And, of course, somebody ran up the hill and triggered an avalanche, and people died as a result. And I explain this because he was in the presence of triggering cues that told him many times in his life he had done this one activity, this high marking, and it had felt really good. And so we do what makes us feel good, and we behave automatically, and we stop thinking. So that's why smart people do stupid things. One thing that I often tell myself in stressful situations is I I just repeat two words, basically stoic and measured, trying to bring myself back to the present moment. So in your work, you make several references to stoicism via Admiral Stockdale and others. What was the purpose of exploring these stoics? Because they're deliberately um, putting the brakes on an automatic reaction that we have to pain. So there is a circuitry in the brain that some neuroscientists refer to as the rage circuit. We can see this at work easily. All you have to do is step on the tail of a cat and you'll see the rage circuit at work. The claws come out, the grimacing, the the squealing, the hair stands up. There's this classic sort of stereotypical reaction when the rage circuit is engaged that we all have, all mammals have this circuitry in the brain, if you want to call it a pathway, or some some of the scientists don't like the word circuit. But there is another pathway in the brain that they call the seeking circuit. And you can, again, see it in the behavior of a cat. The cat stalks prey. And when the cat is stalking prey, it gets very motivated, very goal-oriented, very quiet, slow-moving, close to the ground, focused, and it catches the prey because it's being quiet. Now, you cannot have the rage circuit working while the seeking circuit is working. It just wouldn't work. You'd never catch any prey that way. And so these two circuits dampen each other out. When you engage the seeking circuit, the rage circuit can't work. And so talking before about engaging in rational behavior, this 
sort of goal-oriented, directed, quiet, um, rhythmic, often behavior of the seeking circuit will calm down the rage circuit. So if you're apt to react, the Stoics were, were good at practices that engage the seeking circuit, although they didn't call it that. But if you, for example, find, let's say, that playing piano is an activity that activates your seeking circuit and makes you feel good, if you're all riled up, you can sit down and play the piano, and it'll calm you down. Well, it feels good, so you'll probably do it again. And if you do it enough, you'll become a really good piano player. <laughs> so often we have this sort of relationship between trauma and genius that you can see historically, where people who, are, who have been traumatized and therefore have an overactive rage circuit will find some activity such as playing piano or playing chess or gardening or knitting, any number of things, running marathons. There are all kinds of things that will activate the seeking circuit, calm down the rage circuit, and make you feel better. These are also things that will calm you down and allow you to think more clearly, too. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of the, the reason of citing the Stoics, because they had a handle on this. Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the Events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. Continuing on this thread where you're speaking in detail about neuroscience, can you please explain what a mental model is for our listeners? Yes. So if you take something like a dog and a little kid, so when my grandchildren started to be about one and a half and started saying words, um, or even earlier, uh, one of the first things they learn is doggy, because there's dogs all over the place. People walk their dogs, and they see the dog, and they say doggy. And somebody points it out and says doggy. Well, with about two or three experiences of seeing a dog, little kids will know all dogs. They will not mistake a goat for a dog. They will not mistake a cat for a dog. They will know what dogs are, even though dogs often don't look anything alike. So from a Chihuahua to a Great Dane, somehow this child has formed what I call a mental model, which is a sort of schematic extraction of the essence of dog, and they can now identify all dogs. And we have that ability with any kind of any kind of perceptual element in our environment. If you put two dots and a line on a piece of paper, people will identify it as a face. Um, the, the sign for a handicapped parking space does not really look like a person in a wheelchair, except we all recognize that it's a person in a wheelchair. So we have these 
schema or these mental models that we collect, and we start collecting them very early, probably before birth, and we collect them all our lives. And most people, by the time they're adults, have a working set of these mental models that makes them very efficient at processing the world. They don't have to look at everything and examine it to find out what it is. They see a car, they know it's a car. They see a book, they know it's a book, and so forth. So these are the mental models that we work with. And then by the, the automatic process that I was talking about before, we learn to do things with the mental models. We learn how to behave with them. We learn what they do and what their properties are. And so then our lives become sort of automatic and seamless and efficient, and that's a good thing, but it can also lead us into systematic mistakes when mm -hmm. we just behave automatically. I think that this is really relevant to what we're seeing with firefighters who are taught to have a mental map of the space that they're in, but it's unrealistic because they can't imagine a space they've never been in. And if they create a map with too much detail, it's likely to not actually align with the space that they're in. So how do you create a mental map of a place you've never been or an experience you've never, never had before? Well, it's an unreasonable um, request because that's not the way the brain works. So the brain has a, a mapping ability. There's, there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus that's involved in making mental maps. And there are cells in the brain called place cells um, that fire and help us make maps. And we make these maps like grids. So if you if you come over to somebody's house, let's say your you know sibling buys a new house and you go over for dinner for the first time, and this person will say to you, "Come in, let me let me give you the tour." People want to know where they are. And so the person takes you around the new house and shows you, well, here's the bedroom, and here's the living room, and here's the kitchen, and so on. And as you're doing that, you're mapping it. Mm -hmm. And you can't map it without actually doing it. So to tell somebody to try to make a mental map of a space that they have not been in is hard. It doesn't mean you can't look at a map and figure it out, but it becomes much easier if you walk through it because these special cells actually fire they fire as you cross your own path. So going around somebody's house, walking around it, makes a map for you. Mm -hmm. um, firefighter in a strange um, building that he's never seen before is in grave danger. And you've made the distinction between linear and complex systems and suggest that like you mentioned earlier, we often apply linear thinking to sim systems that are not linear. And we're living in a time where there is a professional expectation to identify causation for every mishap or catastrophe. So to what extent do you think chance influences outcome? And why do you think so few organizations actually acknowledge it? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. They the world that we live in is a complex world and often, more often than not, is not behaving in a linear fashion. So if you look at something like the coronavirus, it is a nonlinear system. So it's not additive. It's not like one plus one equals two. It's perhaps logarithmic, perhaps some other power, uh, power law that will increase things by gigantic steps. So if you look at if you want to know what a complex system is, you can look at the stock market. The stock market has prices for everything that sells on the market, 
and the prices wiggle along day to day. They may go up a little, they may go down a little, they may go up a lot, they may go down a lot. And then every once in a while, there's a gigantic earthquake of a crash like we saw. And these things are part, a natural part of the system. They don't really need to have a cause. Sometimes they are triggering events, but sometimes they are not. Something like earthquakes behave the same way. There are a lot of little tiny earthquakes going on all the time. And then every once in a while, there's a really big one. Um, so these kind of behaviors are, are called complex systems. Uh, the weather is a complex system, for example. You'll have lots of little rainstorms, and then you'll have a gigantic tornado. So in our lives, we're, we're not used to thinking that way. We tend to think of 1 plus 1 equals 2, like I said, and 1 plus 1 can often equal a great deal more or less than 2. Well, speaking of complexity, you reference Charles Perrault in your work and his seminal contribution in the form of normal accidents, which offers us a cautionary tale about engineering safety into complex systems. I wonder which scholar or thought leader has shaped your thinking and understanding of human behavior under stress the most? Well, my thinking about human behavior under stress came from essentially the neuroscience that started to be done once we had these imaging machines like um, magnetic resonance imaging and so on. And we began to see like, oh, yes, this part of the brain is active when this person is doing a certain kind of activity. And you began to see how one part of the brain could prevent another part from functioning. And so there were some early uh, neuroscientists in this field like Joseph Ledoux, Robert Sapolsky, and several others. And I started, I had been thinking about the brain for a long time. And when this new research came out, I thought, oh, suddenly there's an answer to what I've been wondering about all, these, all this time. What was he thinking when he did this stupid thing? And the answer was he wasn't thinking. He was reacting. Mm -hmm. So it's been 17 years since Deep Survival was published. Have you changed your mind or position on anything? No, I actually, we had a new edition of it come out um, a couple of years ago, and I had an opportunity to go through it carefully and reconsider, you know, did I want to change anything? And I made some little corrections, but no, generally not. And it's proved over that time to have a very broad appeal to people in all kinds of endeavors where they have to make decisions with incomplete information or make decisions in you know hazardous situations make decisions you know about corporate behavior about financial behavior doctors treating diseases use this book to help them make decisions so it's proved to be very durable in that sense Yes, and I mentioned earlier that it is very transferable as, you know, I shared it with so many different friends and they latched onto it. The first person I actually lent the book to, which I still have not received back, uh, she was training for a hundred mile race in Vermont and she needed that book as part of her training. So right. definitely so transferable. One of the things that I talk about is, you know, if you're in a situation like that, a hundred mile race, this is a an overwhelming kind of thinking, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't possibly do that. But one of the lessons of deep survival is, yeah, you can do it. You just have to break it down into more manageable bits. And so I mentioned earlier in our talk today 
I said, you can even use it to help clean your garage. Well, you know, sometimes you let things go and you look around one day and your garage is filled to the roof with junk and you think, oh my goodness, how can I possibly undo this mess that I've created? And the answer is one step at a time. I mean, the, the answer is you do little bits of it and it all gets done because the world is finite. doesn't mean it's going to be easy or pleasant, but it can be pleasant, actually. Um, you can enjoy it if you approach it the way she approached the 100-mile race, which is you take the race one step at a time. Literally. And so that's, that's a big part. One of the guys I talk about, and I can't remember if this is in Deep Survival or or something else that I wrote, but he was a guy who was going on a solo cross-country ski trip in Grand Teton National Park. So it's the middle of winter. It's a beautiful day. He's five miles out. He parks his car. He goes skiing. He's five miles out, and he breaks his leg. He goes down a slope the wrong way, and he gets a torsion fracture of his, of his ankle in his boot. So he is totally crippled. And he's five miles out, and he just has his backpack. He was just going to go out and back in that one day. Now he can't go anywhere. So what he did, and I, and I cite him as a, a really good example of a survival, he sat down right where he was. He took out his tent. He set up his tent. He took out his stove. He unpacked some tea and had water and made himself some tea, and then he fixed himself some food, and he ate. And he did all of these things that I count on the sort of rational side of things to calm himself down and fortify himself for what he was going to have to do, which was rescue himself. Then he decided the only way to get out was to scoot on his butt, and he would dedicate every hundred moves to something he loved back at home that he wanted to get back to. So he started scooting on his butt. He dedicated 100 moves to his wife. He dedicated 100 moves to his mother. He dedicated 100 moves to his guitar because he loved playing guitar. And all of these things were reminders of why he wanted to get back to living his life and not perish out there. And he got back. He got all the way to the parking lot and rescued himself. And this is the way, this is the survivor's way. I absolutely love that. Thanks for sharing. I mentioned in the intro that in 2016, you were given an appointment as a Miller Scholar at SFI. As reported in the official announcement, the Miller Distinguished Scholarship is the most prestigious visiting position at SFI awarded to highly accomplished creative thinkers who make profound contributions to our understandings of society, science, and culture. When you think of current research in neuroscience and psychology, is there a particular theme or idea that you believe will enlighten our understanding of human behavior under stress? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's what I was talking about earlier about the unconscious. So there are, very, there are many terms for this. I was referring to it as automatic behavior, and it is automatic behavior, but there's a part of us that um, is coming under more and more study, and it goes like this. This is a typical thing that happens to a scientist. You're working on a problem. You've studied the problem for a long time. You seem to have learned everything you can possibly learn about this problem, but you can't solve the problem. It's really, you're stuck. 
and so you you know Christmas time comes around, you get on an airplane, you go somewhere to spend Christmas, and you're lounging around at the hotel doing nothing, and you fall asleep, and you wake up with the idea with the solution to the problem. So where did that come from, and how does mm-hmm. that work? We know from history that this happens all the time in science, in the arts, uh, in all kinds of settings. We have this system going on in the background of our minds all the time that's doing work for us, and we don't know how it works. We don't know where it's located. We don't know hardly anything about it, except everybody knows that it works that way. So this is an area of study that is kind of opaque and yet very important because we get things done that way. And I think it's it's working all the time for us. We just can't bring it into the front part of our consciousness. And that, to me, is the most fascinating element of neuroscience we're looking at today. Yeah, I'm wildly intrigued by that myself, so I'm excited to see where that goes, and I appreciate that response. Lastly, we as a team have been looking at the question, what happens when we play to win and lose? Your work and research provides a great deal of insight. So as we wrap up today, I'd like for you to elaborate on a mantra which you have, which is the gift of adversity. What do you mean by that? When I say the gift of adversity, what I'm talking about is that survivors face adversity and treat it as opportunity. And so that means, for example, you know, if something bad happens to me, I'm immediately going to try, and I'm not saying that I'm really good at this, but I'm going to try to look at it and say, what can I learn from this? You know, this bad thing has happened now. How can I learn from it? How can I perhaps help others learn from it? How can I turn it around so that instead of being a victim of it, I'm a, a rescuer of someone, perhaps myself? Um, you know, what do I do now? And so just a quick example is the other day, because of the coronavirus, we saw this huge crash in the stock market. And I I have some money in stocks, right? So I'm sitting there looking at this chunk of money disappear, you know, just like evaporate. And I'm thinking, wow, woe is me. On the other hand, I looked at it and I thought, no, wait a minute. Somebody is having a fire sale here, and I'm going to buy some of this stuff because it's going to come back. I mean, it's not the end of the United States as we know it, and the stock market will come back. So I'm going to get some cheap stuff here, and later on I'll see it make money. And that's just one sort of practical example. But when we look at the world, no matter how bad things are, as presenting opportunities, then we just do better. You know, we're, we're happier. We survive better. Uh, I mean, it's it's a terrible thing to say, but even the coronavirus is an opportunity for many people, and certainly for doctors, it's an opportunity to learn something they might never have been able to learn without this. I appreciate that, and I appreciate everything that you shared today. It really is needed always, but personally, for me right now, um, I feel like I am able to tap into a more resilient mindset after this conversation. I think our listeners will as well. So thank you so much for being with me today. You're quite welcome. Was there anything that you wanted to flush out? We have a few minutes left. 
what I would add to it is that the book Surviving Survival, so Deep Survival is a book that basically each story ends with the rescue of the person. You know, the event is over and you're either dead or you're rescued, right? You either rescue yourself or somebody else rescues you. And then it's just kind of like go on with normal life, right? But it's not true. That's not the way it happens, and you know this as a firefighter. Oh, I'm not a firefighter, to be clear. And, uh, you know firefighters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they can, they can tell you this, that it, it doesn't just go back to normal life. And so I wrote the book Surviving Survival for that part of the story, so when the coronavirus pandemic is over, life will not go back to normal. Things have changed quite a bit just in the course of this pandemic. And so in Surviving Survival, I talk about, okay, now the big event is over. How do you recreate your life? What do you do to get on with things? Because you can't go back to the old normal. And so I think that is something that people need to look forward to. Whatever they're doing to survive right now is fine, but when it's really over, then that's a time when they're gonna to have to do another kind of surviving as well. I think there's a quote, it's probably a Darwin quote. It's not the strongest of the species that survives or the most intelligent. It's the one that's most adaptable to change, which right. I think about from time to time. Right, exactly, yeah. Thank you. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.